So, a little bit about agunas. The word aguna means means chained, chained, chained with chains. It's used in scripture for a woman who is married or designated to marry someone, <coughs> but not actually living with them. So someone who is supposed to marry a man, they're not yet married, they're waiting for them, um, they're chained to this man. Um, she's, uh, so to speak, chained or stuck to this man that she is not living with. Um, a man could be, in theory, chained, chained in the same way, and the Hebrew term would be agun, as opposed to a woman would be an aguna. Um, now, the sages of the Talmud, though, use this term aguna specifically for a, very speci- for a very specific scenario, which is a woman whose husband has disappeared. In ancient times, communication was very weak. Communication from village to village, from town to town, from country to country. There were no cell phones. There was no WhatsApp. Right? There was no telephones. No Zoom, right? It was very, very hard to communicate. Um, Even organized post didn't necessarily exist. So communication was weak. Pictures were non-existent. So you you can't just search for someone's picture. There's no social media. So travel also was very, very dangerous. So people disappeared throughout most of history until fairly recently. People disappeared all the time. And no one knew what happened to them. Sometimes it happened when someone was traveling. They would travel, maybe close, maybe far, maybe across deserts or across the ocean. They would travel and they would disappear. We have no idea what happened to them. Sometimes there was an invasion or a war and everybody flees and everyone goes in different directions. People disappear. We don't know what happened to them. Sometimes people are drafted to the military and they are soldiers fighting and they never return. We don't know what happened. MIA, missing in action. And sometimes everything is fine and people just disappear. You wake up in the morning and they are gone. So people disappeared. When a man would disappear, then leave their wife behind, their wife is stuck. Why is she stuck? Because she cannot remarry. She is married already. She also cannot divorce because her husband is not around to grant her the divorce. So she is chained. She is what we call in Hebrew an aguna. She and her friends and supporters and advocates can maybe try to trace what happened to her husband, but they may never find concrete information. (coughs) If the husband is alive and they can somehow get clues Someone says, I think I saw him in this and this town. I think I heard his name somewhere. Then you could continue to follow clues. Send someone to that town. Well, the woman herself could go to that town. Maybe they'll find him. Maybe someone will remember having seen him. But, and so hopefully you follow the clues and you can eventually find him. If he's dead and you get clues, I think I heard that he got killed in this and this place. I think... He was part of the group that was all killed in battle. I think, so you get clues, and someone's dead, you probably will never get further information. How are you ever going to find him unless you know where the grave is? You're never going to find him. He's gone. Then you're really stuck. So assuming that you don't have any evidence, you just have rumors, or you just have very minimal evidence, evidence to suggest that he is dead 
How do you prove it? How do you know that he's really dead? How can you allow the woman to remarry? So this challenge, the challenge of the Aguna, is one of the most important areas in halacha in Jewish law. Over the last few thousand years of Jewish history, tens of thousands of rabbis, if not more, and scholars have dealt with this Aguna problem in an endless number of contexts and scenarios. Every prominent Jewish scholar in our history has extensively been involved in the Aguna issue. It was fairly common throughout history, especially because Jews were traveling a lot. We were travelers. We traveled a lot for business. We were traders. Um, There were regular pogroms, regular anti-Jewish riots. There were always wars. It was an ongoing problem for the Jewish community. And so every Jewish scholar in Jewish history, every rabbi dealt with this issue extensively. Tens of thousands of tshuvot or responsa. Responsa are letters written on um, halachic issues are called responsa or tshuvot in Hebrew. Have been written just on the subject of agunot. Today, the chapter in the Shulchan Aruch in the Code of Jewish Law dealing with agunot, chapter 17 of Evan Ha'ezer, is the longest chapter in Shulchan Aruch. The discussions surrounding the laws of Agunot is easily the most widely addressed subject in Jewish scholarship. With endless numbers of books and articles and letters and, um, uh, and <coughs> pieces written on this subject. Every major Jewish scholar, every minor Jewish scholar that ever lived has addressed this subject in one way or another. Before I get to the exact details of how the Aguna deliberations work and exactly the questions involved and exactly how this issue is resolved, it's first important to understand the legal code of Judaism, how Jewish law works. We often compare Jewish law has its own halacha, Torah has its own halacha, or Jewish law code, legal code that we Jews are required to live by. God gave us the Torah and expects us to live by the laws of the Torah. Now, there are certain laws that may cause immense challenges and hardship. Sometimes it can be hard to fulfill certain commandments. It's still not an excuse to ignore it just because it's difficult. Sometimes it can be very hard, say, to keep the laws of Shabbat. If your boss insists that you come into work, well, you've got to Lose my job, it's too bad, I cannot do it. Thankfully, the Supreme Court recently um, just ruled um, in favor of Shabbat, um, of the Sabbath, very strongly, um, which really bans, if anyone has this issue, um, from your employer ever um, saying anything about your observance of Shabbat. But we're lucky to live in a country with, with these laws. But it's been an issue. Or kosher, you're in a place where it's hard to keep kosher. The difficulty doesn't excuse not fulfilling the commandments unless a life is in danger and we've done classes dedicated to that subject of what to do when a life is in danger but generally even if fulfilling the Torah's laws involve immense hardship we still are expected to do that we don't have the ability to say that we're going to adjust this commandment to make it more palatable to us or because we like it better 
Now, that's very different than, say, our current laws. Um, you know, in the state of California, we have an institution called marriage, and there are many laws in the code, in the state code, that involve, either that relate to people who are married, but that involve how to get married, how to dissolve a marriage, um, in our state civil codes. And um, if we feel that certain marriage laws are unpalatable, we don't like certain laws, and that's happened over the generations, we go to our legislators, or we could create a ballot initiative, and we can change those laws as we feel is necessary. We feel that the way the marriage laws are done or the way divorce laws are done should be, are not the best. We can go to the legislature or we have ballot initiatives in the state. We can change the laws. The Torah, we don't have that option. We are, don't, the Torah is Hashem's laws. They're God's laws. We don't have the liberty to change Hashem's laws even if we don't like them or even if they're very difficult to observe. If we could change Hashem's laws, of course, Judaism would look very different, right? If we could switch around Jewish laws and mitzvahs, commandments as we liked, then we'd you know, make Judaism look the way we wanted. It would look very, very different from the way it does. So we don't have the option. Hashem's laws are not negotiable. They're not changeable. They're not adjustable. Now, sometimes you can find loopholes within the law. Sometimes you can find there's always ways to legal loopholes and ways to get around laws, but we cannot change Hashem's laws. They're his laws. He made them. We don't have the ability to go to our legislature and say, you know what, the Torah says that you have to keep Shabbat and you're not allowed to do all these things on Shabbat, but we don't like this particular one. Can we change it? We don't have those kind of options. So in Jewish law, the way the law is, that's the way it is. We don't have the option to change it. Now to be clear, generally in Proverbs, King Solomon says about the Torah, Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peaceful. Generally, observing the Torah's commandments it makes for a better life. Keeping Shabbat, keeping kosher, you're living a much better life when you follow the Torah's commandments. And many people can tell you that from experience, that have tried both ways, and your life is a lot better off generally following the Torah's commandments. That's generally true. However, there are instances when following the Torah's commandments can be very difficult and very challenging. And it could be any. It could be Shabbat. It could be kosher. It could be any of the other various commandments. And what we're going to deal with is a time when the following the Torah's commandments on marriage laws can be difficult. Even so, we don't have the ability to adjust the law or change the law because they are Hashem's laws. We don't know why Hashem sometimes makes, live, makes his laws difficult, just like we don't know why sometimes Hashem makes life difficult. We believe he's ultimately responsible for what happens to us, and sometimes life gets very difficult. We don't know why things are difficult and why he chooses to do that. But we do believe that following the laws is the best thing for us. And so if there is a challenge, if the laws of the Torah are challenging to follow, then we cannot change the law. We cannot break the law. We must find a way to fix it or the best way to resolve it within the laws. Finding loopholes, finding workarounds, or finding, finding ways within the laws to resolve the problems. So with that introduction, let's look at the challenge of the Aguna, the woman whose husband has disappeared. There are two possibilities if her husband disappeared. 
One is that her husband is dead. If he is dead, he is never going to show up again. The poor woman will now be chained as an aguna for life. She, unless we can fit, prove that he is dead, unless we can declare him legally dead, she will never be able to confirm the death. Until she confirms the death, she will not be able to remarry. That's one possibility. So this poor woman, if he is indeed dead, and we just don't know it, this poor woman is now stuck. He's never going to come back. and She will be stuck for life. On the other hand, he may be alive and well. That is the other possibility. He, maybe he's alive. If he is alive, but just unable to communicate with his family, or perhaps choosing not to communicate with his family, then he may show up one day. If we declare him dead by mistake, and she remarries, because her husband's dead, in between, and then one day her husband shows up, she has committed adultery, a very severe offense in Judaism. Jewish law would require her to leave her current husband, whom she was not allowed to marry because she was already married, since she was married already. She is also forbidden to return to her first husband because under Jewish law, a woman who commits adultery must divorce her current husband. So her new husband is kind of, she was never allowed to be with. And so she must leave him. She must also leave her original husband. She must divorce her. And now she's really stuck. Even more, the children that she has with her second husband would be considered mamzerim or illegitimate. And they would be unable to marry another Jew. So very severe thing if he does show up. So now the rabbi needs to decide or the scholar needs to make the decision. Is the husband alive or dead? If we declare the husband if we presume the husband alive because we cannot find evidence for his death and he's truly dead, this poor woman's going to be stuck for the rest of her life. She'll never be able to marry. If we declare the husband dead based on the evidence before us and it turns out we made a mistake, then her life is messed up again. So this is something where you cannot afford to get wrong. So what happens, sometimes there may be evidence. Someone shows up and says, we know he died. All right, you got evidence. It's clear evidence. Um, assuming that that person is not out to get her, that's a warning. If it's someone who we suspect is out to get her, we don't trust him, right? Because he might want to ruin her life by saying your husband's dead when he's really not, and then she remarries, and then her whole life is messed up. So, right? so assuming that it's not, right? Uh, who would be out to get them? Talmud says, your mother-in-law, right? Your mother-in-law don't trust them. Um, no, seriously. Uh, but someone who might be out to get you. But otherwise, a regular person comes and says the husband is dead and we assume he's dead. But what if we don't have strong evidence? What if someone heard something? There was a storm at sea. He was captured by pirates. There was an invasion and the men of the town were killed. Someone heard he had been killed. We don't have direct eyewitness. But we have hearsay. Someone heard somebody else say that he had been killed. So... For the scholars or the rabbis dealing with this issue, with this woman's challenge, they have now a very, very difficult choice. What do you do? Use the evidence that you have to declare the husband dead. Allow the woman to remarry. What if it's not true? What if he shows up? Ignore the evidence as non-conclusive. What if he is dead? And now the woman is stuck for the rest of her life. 
So this is a very, very difficult decision that no rabbi or scholar can afford to get wrong. Now, the Aguna decision, the decision to decide whether to declare the husband dead or not, is not something that a rabbi can decide based on their own personal opinion of the evidence. Look at the evidence and say, I think that the husband is alive or I think the husband is dead. The way a jury today would look at the evidence in a case, in a criminal case, and say, we think the evidence points to this or we think the evidence points to that. The rabbi does not have the right to do that. Rather, Jewish law has very strict rules about what evidence is considered acceptable and what evidence cannot be accepted. A rabbi then who wants to make a ruling with regard to the aguna would need to first write a teshuva or write a response, write an article, an essay, explaining to defend his decision, explaining why Jewish law, explaining what the evidence is, and why Jewish law either accepts or does not accept the available evidence. So it's not enough for the rabbi to say, I think this is true, or I think it's not true. It rather is up to the rules of evidence, which evidence can be accepted and which evidence cannot be accepted. As we will see, the rules of evidence are fairly reasonable, but it's not up to the rabbi's own hunch or uh, intuition. It's rather up to uh, the way the law judges the evidence. Now, often what happens is a rabbi dealing with this question because this is something that you cannot afford to get wrong. Either way, if you make the wrong decision here, you cause a lot of problems. So you, you can ruin this woman's life. So it's something a rabbi cannot afford to get wrong. Often rabbis were not comfortable making the ruling themselves. Often they would send it to other prominent rabbis, which is why we have a lot of chufot, a lot of responsa, they would send letters to other prominent rabbis and say, these are the facts of the case, these are, this is my opinion on the case, what is your opinion? So they don't make the decision alone. Um, and often there would be kind of very famous rabbis who would be experts in agunas throughout history, we had these, whom they would send their question to, often they would send to multiple rabbis to kind of build a consensus uh, because they didn't want to make a mistake with this. Sometimes it did happen there was disagreement where some rabbis would say she can remarry, some would say she can't, and then their local rabbi would have to decide, decide then which way he would tell her to go. Uh, but the discussion would always be based on the Jewish law of evidence, which evidence was acceptable, which evidence is not. So generally, when presenting evidence in Jewish court, say for a criminal case or a civil case, the bar required by Jewish law for evidence is very, very high. Usually, you need two eyewitnesses. And they need to be witnesses that actually saw whatever it is. If they just heard somebody else say something, hearsay, it's generally thrown out of court. We don't even pay attention to it. They need to be reliable witnesses. They need to be people whom we would trust they need to be, um, and usually we need one witness is not enough, you need two witnesses. However, given the challenges of the Aguna, that if her husband is indeed dead, and we don't have two witnesses that her husband is dead because he died in front of one person, or he died and the people who saw it aren't here, we don't know how to get hold of them. So we may not be able to get two witnesses, but he may really be dead. Um, 
And given also that if the husband is alive, chances are sooner or later he's going to show up. Or we're going to get real life evidence of him. And if that happens, whoever testified that he was dead is now a proven liar. So some things you can testify, so-and-so shot someone, no one will ever know if you lied or not. Someone, another witness could come and contradict what you said. But there's no way you can prove for certain that, you lie, that this person lied. But if you testify someone is dead when they're really alive, the fellow shows up, then you've lost, the, the, the witness has lost all credibility. So given that um, the credibility of the witness themselves is on the line in a way, in a much greater way than in most cases that come before a court, um, people don't usually lie about these kind of things. You don't lie about things that can later be proven absolutely false. You don't lie about facts that will later be shown to be otherwise. So because of that, and because of the challenge of the aguna, Jewish law, when it comes to agunas, allows for a much lower bar of evidence than we would normally require in Jewish courts. We accept one witness, a single witness is good enough. We accept hearsay, secondhand. So-and-so told me that this fellow is dead. And we would even accept somebody, perhaps, who we normally wouldn't trust, in a case where they are what we call a masiach lefitumo, people just telling us stories. They weren't they didn't mean to say testimony. They were just telling the story of how, you know, telling the story of how I survived the attack on the village. Right? And someone's telling the story of what they witnessed and they go through all the details, and they're not intending to testify for this woman or against this woman um, about this particular man being dead. They just, in the course of their story, they mention that this fellow died. And I heard them tell the story. That's enough. I can then testify. I know that this woman's husband is dead. However, while the witness themselves doesn't, we trust even one witness, we trust even people who normally would not be credible, who knew people maybe who we don't trust because they have a bad, they're criminals and they have a bad rap sheet. We trust, um, uh, we, we trust, um, uh, we trust pe- even hearsay in this party, in the Aguna scenario. However, the, the, the testimony must be very specific. I know so and so died. How do you know he died? I saw him drop dead. I buried him. I saw his body. Otherwise, it's not believed. I saw him from a distance and he was wearing clothing that I would recognize as his. That is not evidence. I saw him as part of a group of people who were all killed. That is not evidence. Why? Because sometimes people are almost killed, almost die, and then they survive. The Talmud says, this is back in Roman times when crucifixion was a common punishment, if you see someone crucified, the Romans would often crucify people, right? They would nail them to a cross and let them stay there to die. You see someone crucified. That's not evidence that they're dead because they could live for a few days in horrible pain in that cru- as a crucified. Maybe they got off somehow. Someone got them off. Maybe they survived. How do you know that they died? Or, the Talmud says, if someone falls into a pond or a small lake 
and not seen coming out, you can assume that they died, that they drowned. But if someone fell into the river or someone fell into the ocean and you never found the body, maybe they came out downstream. Maybe they survived. How do you know they died? If there was an attack and all the men in the town were killed or he was part of a regiment in the military, the entire regiment was killed. That's not enough. Did you see him being killed? Did you see his body? Did you see this man is dead? Why? Many times people are almost killed and don't actually get killed. One example is brought by the great sage of Yaakov Emden um, about his grandfather, Rabbi Yaakov Ashkenazi, who was a great rabbi, um, who was in... Um, who, who was a victim, like many Jews, in the um, 1648 um, uh, uprising, which was a um, Ukrainian-Polish war. Um, one day, God willing, we'll do a class on that subject. Uh, very sad subject, but it was one of the greatest um, genocides in Jewish history prior to the Holocaust, um, where tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed. Um, in where, where the Ukrainian Cossacks went from town to town, village to village, rounding up Jews and killing them all. And so anyway, this fellow was in a town where they rounded up all the Jewish men. They let the Jewish women run. The Jewish, the, they, they didn't round, round up the Jewish women. Other times they did kill women and children. Uh, but in this town, they rounded up all the Jewish men and they killed them one by one. And there were some men that managed to escape into a ditch nearby. And they were witnessing the murders. And these, these men managed to escape, and they managed to make it to Moravia, which was, which was at the time Germany. Today it's, um, it's Czechia, uh, but at the, time, or about the time it was Germany, and it was outside of the reach of the, uh, it was outside of Poland. And um, they said that they saw a Cossack standing over him with a sword, and they saw him fall. And was he dead? His wife was there in Moravia. Was she allowed to remarry? Sure enough, a month or two later, he showed up in Moravia. What happened? The Cossack almost killed him, um, but did not end up actually killing him. Instead of lowering his sword to him, he started lowering his sword, and he was kind of underneath him, and then he just kicked him to the ground and left him. And he played dead and waited there for a couple days in the field because he was afraid playing dead. He was afraid they would come back um, because they were still rummaging through the village. Um, and then he escaped and he made it out. And there are dozens of these stories in our history of people who were given up for dead and very close to death but did not actually die. So because of this, you need evidence that they actually died. Yes, Debbie? Is there any timeline, like after a few years, if they don't show up? Excellent question. So a lot of factors have to be taken into account. Um, if the couple got along and the fellow had no debts or reasons to flee, then there's reason to assume that he's... Uh, that if he's alive, he'll get in contact after a reasonable amount of time. 
Now, the fact that he didn't get in contact is not evidence that he died because he may have been captured and he may be a slave somewhere, right? That was common in war. Um, he may have been captured and that he's not able to communicate. He may be far away. He may be, um, especially if his wife is somewhere else, not in the original town, then he may not know where she is, right? So it may not be possible to communicate. Um, so it's not evidence that he's dead, but it definitely is a factor. So in deciding, we have a number of what we call factors. These are not evidence. In other words, they cannot be taken as evidence on their own, but we can put multiple factors together to, along with flimsy evidence or limited evidence of hearsay or the like, to be able to declare him dead. Um, if, um, if there's still war, there's chaos, he may not be able to contact his wife. Um, so the rabbi has to take all of these kind of relevant factors into, um, into consideration. If the, they didn't get along, or he had creditors going after him, even if, um, you know, we have reason to believe he may have died, but he also has reason to disappear, right? So then that would be a factor in, you know, presuming him maybe he is alive and just not getting in contact with us. So, I mean, so all these things have all, so there's many factors that can be taken into consideration when making these decisions. Again, these decisions are not made based on the rabbi's own intuition or judgment of the evidence, but made based on the Torah's rules of, um, of um, viewing the evidence and weighing the evidence. Um, they're very complex rules. As I said, this is probably the most complicated section of Jewish law. Um, more has been written on this than any other part of Jewish law. So when it's all been analyzed, if the rabbi decides that there's enough evidence of the husband's death to declare him dead, he will declare him dead. The woman can remarry. If he decides there is not enough evidence, given the evidence that we have to declare him dead, then he is not declared dead and the woman cannot remarry unless new evidence can, uh, no, new evidence arises. There's no guarantees that he's, a, he's dead. He could be somewhere. Okay, so there's no time. No, but time is a factor in, over time, we presume the longer time has passed without him getting in contact, it's more likely that he's dead. So it's not evidence, but it's a factor. Right, it's a big difference, right? So we, we have, in, we have this actually in Jewish law, there's three different levels of evidence that we use um, for Aguna. It, it gets pretty complicated. Um, in how we weigh different pieces of evidence, but we can weigh um, additional factors like him having not gotten in contact, him having been good, having a good relationship with his wife, um, and other factors, him having left the business behind, right, and other factors like that um, that would make it more likely to assume that he's dead. Yes. What happens if a wife that's an excellent question. Excellent question. What if a wife, can a man be an ogun? The short answer is a similar problem, but I'm going to get to that. Very good question. It was much less common. I'll soon explain that. So, agunas, this problem of aguna has existed throughout our history. It's been a continuous problem. Jews have always traveled. There has always been wars. There's always been anti-Jewish violence. that has always led to agunas. It's always been a problem. Uh, people just disappeared. Communication was never great. The Talmud already mentions many Aguna cases. 
Um, notably, the Talmud mentions that in the um, the second in the Jew- second Jewish rebellion against the Romans, led by a fellow called Shimon ben Kuziba, often known as Bar Kochba revolt, um, their final stand was in a town south of Jerusalem called Beitar, a heavily fortified town that um, had hundreds of thousands of people in it at the time that it fell. The Romans besieged the town. When Betar fell, the Romans killed every single person in Betar. The Talmud says there was not a single survivor who was able to testify as to who died. Not only that, when the war was over, the Romans refused to allow Jews from other places to bury the dead of Betar. And so as a result, all those people, all those fighters who fought in that war, were ne- they were never able to prove who died. All their wives remained agunas. There was no evidence because there were no survivors. Um, there have been other times um, since during periods of um, anti-Jewish violence, um, like the Crusaders, for example, um, there were many agunas were created. Many, many Jews were killed, Jewish men, women, children. Uh, many people fled. Um, often families got separated. And as a result, they didn't know if the husband was alive. He wasn't alive. Sometimes they'd send their family away for, for safety. And they'd stay behind to watch the family home or the like. Um, and so um, this created many, many aguna problems. The same thing happened in the infamous 1648-1649 pogroms that I mentioned before in um, Ukraine, the Khmelnytsky uprising, um, where hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, definitely maybe even hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed, um, and um, entire towns were wiped out, and this led to endless number of Jewish, hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees, and many, many women who did not know what happened to their husband, and trying to find reports, people who witnessed what happened, people from their town, and this led to um, thousands and thousands of agunas, if not more. Um, and so we have, and there are many, many other wars and um, instances of violence throughout our history when we've had these problems. Yes? So uh, years ago when women didn't really make a living, how did they that's an excellent question. How does a woman who's alone support their family? Um, it's always been a challenge. Um, I think the statement that women didn't make a living years ago is somewhat false. Um, women often did work, very often did work. I mean, they had to take care of their kids. Yeah. They, well, depending on the age of their kids, but the, many, many women historically did work. Um, it's, somewhat of a, uh, it, it, it's somewhat of a mistaken conception. Did the men like divorce their wives before they went to war? So excellent, excellent. I'm going to talk about that, that in a moment. So when there was great immigration, it also created aguna problems. Why? Because when there was immigration, what tended to happen is men would go ahead to find a home, find a job, before paying for their wives to come over. What if the men disappeared? What happened? This particularly was a problem in the greatest Jewish immigration ever in history, was when two to three million Jews fled the Russian Empire to come to the United States between 1891 and 1914. Almost all of us, our grandparents, were part of that immigration. And um, very often, a lot of it was young people, teenagers or young adults, singles that came. Often, though, it was young families that came over. 
And when married people came, almost always the husband went first because tickets were expensive and taking care of a family is expensive. The husband would go first, um, pay for a ticket, raise until he, when he had enough money for a ticket for himself, land here, um, stay maybe with a relative for a little while, find a job, start sending money back to his family, save up until he could afford to bring his family over and afford an apartment for himself. Right? Meanwhile, they'd live in these squalid conditions, maybe many, you know, 20, 30 men in a small apartment. Um, and um, immigrants still live like that today. Um, and uh, they would, and, and that, then the wives would come over. Now, unfortunately, many of these husbands disappeared. Sometimes they died. They died on the way to the United States. There were often diseases on the ships. They died here in the United States. Starvation, disease, they died. Um, and nobody bothered to tell the, the, the wife. What happened actually more often was, living alone, away from their wives, they found other girls here in this country, and they stopped communicating with their wife back home and went... Um, and, uh, and they were cut off. The rabbis here in the United States at the time went to great lengths to try to trace down these men, try to find them. And rabbis in Europe would write all the time, the rabbis here in the United States, so-and-so left behind a wife, does anyone know what happened to him? Um, thinking hopefully that the rabbis here in the U.S. could trace him. In fact, American newspapers in those days, um, the Yiddish newspapers, the big ones, were the, was the Togmorgen Journal and the um, Farvart, still around today as the Forward, um, regularly published lists of these missing men. They would often, the newspapers would publish regular lists of missing men. You know, the name, the town they were from. Anyone knows any information? Let so-and-so know about it so that Either they could send a divorce, divorce their wife from here, they could send a divorce document over, um, or um, reconnect with their wives, or if they're dead, send notice of their death. Um, so this, that was always, that, that had been a big issue here in the United States. Now when Jews served as soldiers, I mentioned this earlier, it created further Aguna problems. Why soldiers, often on the battlefield, die there, and they, back then there was no way to bring them home. They would bury them there. Historically, when a soldier died, they'd bury them on the spot, if they could. Often they'd just left there. But if they could bury them, if they were treating, they'd just be left there. But if they could bury them, they would bury them right there. And often the whole regiment dies, and there's no evidence of the person's death. So the Talmud tells us, as Annette pointed out, that in ancient times, all Jewish soldiers would divorce their, their wives before going to war. You go to war, you first write your wife a divorce, and then go to war because it was so common for them not to come home and to disappear. Um, if they survived and came back, you could remarry if your wife is still available. But till then, first, hopefully she's waiting for you. But first, first divorce your wife so you don't leave her behind. For whatever reason, this practice was not, while it was done in ancient times, in biblical times, it was not done throughout history. It's not clear why. There were definitely times that it was done. And we have different accounts throughout history when the rabbi of the town would say, all the Jewish soldiers, there's a war broke out, lots of Jewish soldiers were drafted, all the Jewish soldiers who are married need to divorce their wives, and they would make kind of arrange for this mass 
divorce ceremony for everyone to divorce their <laughs> wives. It often wasn't done, probably because soldiers often left to war without much notice. Um, a Jewish divorce is something that takes time, um, is difficult, it cannot just be done kind of on the, on the fly, on the spot. Um, it requires witnesses, it requires a sofa or a scribe. And so um, for that reason, it probably often wasn't done. And it created a big problem. There were a lot of soldiers who were MIA, missing in action. And um, we didn't know what happened to them. This happened particularly in World War I. In World War I, when many Jewish soldiers fought on both sides in the trenches, and in trench warfare, there was no way to collect the dead. Because they, they were, there was a battlefield. There was no way to collect that. People died in the trenches. A trench was captured. There was no way to... They were, they were just left there, or the, the army that captured the trench would just bury them in the trench. So there was no way to know who died. Many, many Jews, unfortunately, were missing in action. Created many, many Aguna problems. The same ha happened to a lesser extent in World War II. Um, World War II, there were no bayonets anymore. So um, people tended to die more on their side than, you know, literally hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, but there was still a problem, this problem in World War II, even in Israel's later wars, this remained a problem of people who were missing in action. Um, but it wasn't just the wars, the Holocaust, of course, where millions and millions of Jews were rounded up, six million of them were killed, a um, couple hundred thousand survived. Some in the camps, some survived um, by, uh, in hiding, Right? Some survived in the forests or by fleeing to, um, by fleeing the war into the Soviet Union or to other places. And often couples got separated and it led to a huge number of agunas. There were a great number of scholars who were survivors that worked. Most of the survivors ended up in German DP camps after the war, in American DP camps in Germany after the war. Um, and there were a couple hundred thousand, about a half a million Jewish survivors in these DP camps after the war. Um, there were a number of prominent rabbis that survived that also were in these DP camps, and they created, and many of these rabbis worked towards resolving the Aguna question. Surprisingly, um, while um, every survivor who had been married before the war was technically an Aguna at the end of the war, because Almost no couples survived together. Um, it would be almost unheard of during the Holocaust for couples to have hid together or escaped together. Um, and definitely if they ended up in the camps, they were separated. Um, but surprisingly, almost every Aguna issue after the Holocaust was resolved. Um, a big part of it thanks to the German record keeping. The Germans kept very, very extensive records, which the Red Cross took control of after the war um, and organized, um, have only recently in the last decade or so become public, um, but the Red Cross did have access to it, and um, people were able to get definitive records of exactly who was killed because the Germans had lists. Um, so most of that was resolved. Now, thankfully, the Aguna issue, which has plagued the Jewish community um, and Jewish law, for thousands of years is almost entirely gone. It's almost, extreme, it's almost completely disappeared. Communication today is excellent. We have social media, we have text. It's very easy to communicate with someone. It is, we also don't face lots of wars or pogroms. 
Even soldiers don't tend to be missing in action anymore. It's really, even if someone disappears, it's really, really hard today to disappear. And if someone does disappear, you can hire a private investigator, and chances are they'll chase him, tra track him down, um, just like um, as private investigators do. Um, it's today with communication and pictures and IDs. It's become and I, and all forms of identification and registration and bank accounts and all sorts of other trails that people leave behind, it's become almost impossible to disappear. So the Aguna issue is extremely, extremely rare. One time recently when the Aguna issue came up was 9-11. 9-11, um, uh, many, many people were killed. Um, uh, almost 3,000 people in total were killed. Um, a big percentage of them, unfortunately, were Jews. Um, I believe over 100 Jews were killed. Um, at least um, in on 9/11, and um, many Jews were on the planes. Many Jews were in the towers, and almost no remnants were. There were no bodies to be found. Almost nothing found of any of the of any of the people killed on 9/11, um, and it became a big issue. There, many of them were married. Many of them had wives. Um, it was, there were definitely a lot more men than women for some reason. The, the um, the towers um, were mostly financial, and for some reason, men tend to work in finance in much, much larger numbers. Um, so a lot more men were killed on 9-11. Um, but Rav Ovadi Yosef and Rav Zalman Nehemia Goldberg, two of the greatest rabbis in Israel at the time, uh, both no longer alive, um, worked to resolve each and every case, all of which were resolved, thankfully, in the end. Um, for those who were on the planes, it was pretty straightforward because the airlines had lists of exactly who boarded the planes. Um, and um, their lists were very exact because anyone on their list, they ended up paying. Um, they, they ended up paying money to each family of every person who was killed um, in settlements. And so they had very exact lists, right? No one was on the list that wasn't really there. Um, and um, the bigger issue was people in the buildings. Um, those who were known to be in the buildings above where the planes hit, um, it was pretty much not an issue because there's no way they could have survived. The issue was for those that were on planes, on floors that were lower than where the planes hit, or first responders that had gone into the building, going in and out, right? Many of them were killed, um, and it's hard to know um, where they were. Did they survive or not? Um, one of the issues that came up is they did find DNA of many of the victims, and they did many DNA tests on various kind of pieces from the um, from the from the from the um, rubble, and um, this raised the big question of what the role of DNA is in the Aguna question. How much we should pay attention to DNA evidence? Probably the first time it was ever dealt with with regard to the Aguna question. Um, they did eventually find enough evidence to prove the death of every single. Man, Jewish man who left, who's, who, who was married on that day. Um, thankfully, these things are very, very rare today. Um, it's almost unheard of that there should be Aguna issues. Yes, ma'am. So back to what uh, you had mentioned that uh, there was a time when the men would get divorced before they went to war. So when they came back, they would. Uh, 
back and the wife was married to someone else, she can't divorce her husband to go back to the first husband. No, no, that's in this, right. we mentioned that earlier. So we've spoken about women on goodness. What about men? Agun would be the Hebrew term. So the reality is it was mostly men that disappeared, not women. Men traveled. Men were soldiers. In wars, it was usually the men that got killed, not the women. Uh, there were places where they killed women and children as well, but generally, especially in pogroms, but generally they would round up men and kill men so that they shouldn't fight back. Um, it was less common to kill women. So it was men that tended to disappear. Uh, men also tended to be the ones to just disappear from their homes more than their wives. They had more options, right? Women historically had less options, and so it was less likely for a woman to wake up and, dis- and discover... It was more likely, sorry, for a woman to wake up and discover her husband had disappeared um, than the opposite. So for most of Jewish history, though, even if a woman did disappear her husband would not be chained. And that is because under biblical law, polygamy was illegal. And we once did a class on Jewish polygamy, um, and um, I can... Uh, and I encourage you to listen to the podcast if you haven't done so yet, or if you want to hear it again. Uh, but polygamy was legal for most of Jewish history. So even if a man did not know where his wife was, even if he did know where his wife was, he always had the option of marrying a second wife. So it wasn't a big deal. About a thousand years ago... <laughs> about... About a thousand years ago... Polygamy was outlawed, which means that if a woman disappears, the man is not allowed to remarry because he's not allowed to have a second wife, and as a result, the man would become an agun. However, this is not the original biblical law given to us by God. This was rather a later rabbinic law created by our sages known as Cherem de Rabbeinu Gershon, a ruling made by um, the first the Jews of Germany, rabbis in Germany, and then later other communities, um, but about a thousand years ago. Um, they did, given that they, the rabbis made the ban, when they made the ban, they made an exception to the ban. They said in extreme situations, such as if the, rabbi disapp- if the wife disappears and there's not sufficient evidence for her death, um, a husband can marry a second wife if he can get a hundred rabbis to sign on a document declaring, um, declaring that the wife has disappeared. So it's a very rare thing, but there is a work around. Um, so there is an agun problem. It's very rare, and generally we try to find the wife or prove that she disappeared as well, just as we would do for the husband. But there is a work around if we, in, if we absolutely need to. For a wife whose husband disappeared, there is no halachic workaround. The Torah bans a woman from marrying a husband if she's already married. It's adultery, and um, it's a very clear prohibition. And um, there is, and so she needs to either find her husband or prove that he died. So today, the problem of agunas is almost non-existent. People rarely disappear without a trace. Even if they're alive, we'll find them. If they're dead, the death is usually certified somewhere. However, we do face a new problem in the United States that is often referred to as aguna, but it wouldn't technically be the same as the aguna historically. The correct term for the problem that we face today is mesorav leget, people who Jewish divorce refusers. 
So this is an issue that existed throughout Jewish history. It was generally not a major problem. What happened? A couple are not getting along. They're getting into fights. The husband is abusive. It could be the wife is abusive. It's just more common for a husband to be abusive, but it could be the other way too. There's definitely scenarios the other way. Um, and they need to get divorced. The rabbi says, you guys can't live together anymore. You have to get divorced. Or they choose to get divorced. The wife says, I don't want to live with you anymore. I'm moving out. I'm going home. I, I'm, I don't want to live with you anymore. Time to get divorced. What if the husband doesn't cooperate? He doesn't want to get divorced. So this has been an issue throughout Jewish history, but it mostly wasn't a big deal. Because if the husband refuses to cooperate, when the Jewish communities dealt with their own affairs, we had our own autonomous Jewish communities, as we did throughout much of our history. And one day we could do a class on autonomous Jewish communities. That'd be fascinating. So um, we had our own kehila, our own autonomous Jewish communities. We had ways to get him to cooperate. They'd put him into prison if he didn't cooperate. There were other ways. They'd throw him out of the synagogue first. I mean, there were all sorts of things we could do to get him to cooperate. And uh, sooner or later, he cooperated. Even in Israel today, in this, which is a secular state that goes by secular law, but there's still some respect for Jewish law and for Jewish values. If someone refuses to do a Jewish divorce, they get fined. And after, if they still don't divorce, um, after being given heavy fines, they'll get arrested. Um, and they'll sit in prison till they cooperate. Um, so they need to cooperate, um, just as we would do in this country if someone doesn't cooperate with the divorce proceedings, right? If a husband or wife don't cooperate, um, here the um, family judges will do the same thing. They'll throw them, I mean, if they need to, they'll fine them and throw them into prison. Um, they do, we do the same thing here. The problem here is, in the United States and in other countries, while the family court judge will enforce their own rulings and the cooperation of both parties. And if they don't cooperate, there can be sanctions. And some of these sanctions can become pretty costly and pretty challenging um, to force people to cooperate in family law. However, because we have a separation of church and state, a person can go through a civil divorce without ever getting a religious divorce or a Jewish get. The problem is, if someone goes through a civil divorce in this country, um, files for divorce, gets divorced, but does not go through the religious Jewish divorce, the Beth Din, the Jewish court, the Jewish community, their spouse, has no legal way to, force, to coerce them to do a Jewish divorce. How do you force them to divorce? What are you going to do? You could go to court and say, they're not doing my Jewish divorce. The judge will say, sorry, separation of church and state. There's nothing I can do. What are you going to do? How do you force it? You could say you, won't come to the, you can't come to the synagogue anymore. Well, I won't go to synagogue. What are you going to do? You can't put them in prison. Can't beat them up. What are you going to do? So it's become a real problem in this country. Um, there are hundreds um, of mostly women. Um, for some reason, it tends to be the men who refuse. Um, but it could be the work the other way too. But there are hundreds of mostly women in this country whose husbands are currently refusing to religiously divorce their wife. As a result, that woman is not able to remarry. She's stuck. She's chained to him. Um, so what can we do about it? 
about this particular problem. So, and I think I'm sharing this because it's very important. It's very important to know this and to share it with other people you know are in this situation. And I try to share it to anyone I know. That it is very important when a couple decides, a Jewish couple decides to get divorced. The first thing that you do is do the religious divorce. Before finalizing the legal divorce, before doing anything else, the first thing you do is you do the religious divorce. People often tell me, I'm going to wait till my divorce is finalized and then I'm going to do the religious divorce. No, don't wait. The first thing you do is do the religious divorce. The more you've settled and the further along you get in the legal divorce, the harder it's going to be to get the religious divorce. To do the religious divorce first. It's the first thing. And even better, when filing for divorce, make it clear, have your lawyer make it clear to the judge that you expect a religious divorce as part of the settlement. And have them included initially as part of your expectations from your spouse and part of your demands on your spouse to include a religious divorce as well. If at that point it is included, the judge will often expect it. Say, well, go ahead and do it. You're not being nice to your ex, to your, to your spouse. You're not being nice to the person you're divorcing. You've got to cooperate. Depends on the judge. Um, there's no requirement for the judge to do so, but often judges will um, expect them, even if they can't legally force them, they will often expect them to cooperate. And that is part of the cooperation if you notify the judge's and you put it included in your expectations right at the very, very beginning. Um, so it should be the early, immediate in the process, straight away. Um, years ago, there was I saw someone wrote an article complaining about the Jewish Beth Dins, the Jewish courts, that they rush to divorce people and they take a long time converting people. Why are you rushing to divorce people and taking a long time? And the reason, it sounds, it sounds unfair, right? But the reason is simple. Divorce generally can be reversed. You get divorced, you made a mistake, you really love them, remarry, no big deal. It can always be reversed. It's not a big deal. But if you don't divorce them early enough in the process, getting it later is going to be very, very difficult. So just do it. Just divorce, and if later you decide, you know what, we want to re- we want to get back together, you could always remarry. Not going to hurt, um, unless unless he's a couple. Yes. Unless unless she marries someone else, right? Unless she marries someone else, right? So um, so, but the, but but it's a problem because people don't. And conversion takes time because you want to make sure that they're serious about becoming Jewish. They really are committed to following the the, the commandments. Um, and we've done a class previously about conversion. But, the, um, but so it's important when filing for divorce, or if you know anyone Jewish filing for divorce, um, tell, uh, impress on them the importance before you do anything, before you go through any settlement conferences, before you do anything, first file for a religious divorce. Go to the Beth Din and demand a religious divorce. And if they don't immediately say, let's go, and you don't get it the first day, then go to the court and tell the judge that I expect this as part of the divorce. Um, get it, try to get it included, because otherwise it does become very difficult. Unfortunately, what tends to happen is people ignore it and people wait till the end. And then at the end, you know, they ask for the divorce maybe, and they don't get around to it. And then what happens is they find someone, and now they want to get married. 
And then they come to the rabbi, and I've had this many times. They come to the rabbi and say, can I get married? Were you married before? Yes, I was. Did you have a religious divorce? No, I didn't. Well, you're going to now need a religious divorce. Except your ex knows that you're trying to remarry. Yeah. So try to get your ex to go through the process of a religious divorce, which isn't a difficult... I mean, all they have to do is show up in the bed for about two hours and do it. But try to get them to cooperate um, when they know that you found your... You've, you've, found the, you've found the right one, finally. Um, so it doesn't, and it becomes extremely, extremely difficult. And so that is why when someone, this is not, again, the original Aguna problem that our ancestors have dealt with, but it is an issue in this country, in this country in particular, because of our laws, um, that be, uh, because of our laws, um, that um, we need, that we, one should try to get, a religious divorce early on. Um, don't wait. There are today, for those that still refuse to get, refuse to give the divorce, there are those organizations that mount, there are special organizations for it, to mount pressure campaigns. They do protests in front of the person's home to try to pressure them. Um, they tr you know, pr try to pressure them in other ways, throw them out of the synagogue, something we could still legally do, um, in order to get them to um, divorce. Um, we also advocate for laws. Um, I believe New York has such a law. Um, I don't think any other state does. But we advocate for laws that allow judges to legally require Jewish divorce. Um, and it should be legal despite separation of church and state because it is part of... It should, because it is part of... Um, satisfying the needs of both sides and so there are arguments that it should be constitutional legal, legal and I don't think it's been constitutionally challenged yet um, but we advocate for such laws in every, in every state that allow the requirement of religious divorce to be part of divorce proceedings um, but even so it is an issue today. Um, regardless Aguna has been an issue throughout our history and a fascinating issue um, that thankfully we no longer deal with today and hopefully we should never have to know such issues, right? People should be happily married, live happily, um, happily ever after, and not have to worry about these things.